Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. It's great to be back with you as ever. And can I thank you so much for leaving those ratings and reviews in the iTunes store or through the Apple Podcasts app. It really does make a difference. So if you wouldn't mind, if you are using iTunes or Apple Podcasts to listen to the podcast, I really would appreciate the review. It just helps us to continue to spread the word. We've been talking a lot lately about technology. But of course, as you know, if you're a long-term listener to The Blind Side, we're a blindness podcast, not just a technology podcast. So tech is just one thing that we cover. And we're going to be talking about something completely different today. How would you feel about the prospect of being taught cane travel or orientation and mobility by somebody who, like you, was blind? Some people believe that that's just not right, that a blind person can't possibly teach cane travel, orientation and mobility with the same degree of competency and safety as a sighted person. I decided we should talk to a blind O&M and get to the bottom of how they do what they do. And when I decided to put this podcast together, a name that kept coming up was Deja Powell from Utah. And so we'll talk with Deja in just a moment and ask some questions about how she is doing the job that she does. And everybody who mentioned Deja's name to me said she does the job exceptionally well, so it's great to be able to talk with her. And after that, a little bit of a where are they now section of the podcast, because if you were listening a few weeks ago, you know that we covered New Zealand's election in great depth. That election took place on Saturday, so we'll bring you up to date with some of the people that we interviewed and what happened to them On election night, spoiler alert, we don't have a result quite yet. That's all coming up on this week's edition of The Blind Side. Thanks so much for being here. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. We have a show on Mushroom FM called A Cuppa at the Mosins. And a few months ago, the subject of blind cane travel instructors came up. And I was struck by how many people who called into that show expressed some concern about whether blind people should be teaching cane travel instruction. And I thought it would be good to get a cane travel instructor on the blind side to talk with us about this. And the name that kept coming up for me was Deja Powell, who teaches cane travel in Utah. And she has an interesting story besides the cane travel instruction. So Deja, it's great to have you on the blind side. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. I'm excited to be here. Great to have you here. Let's talk about your beginnings. You've traveled around a bit, right? I think you grew up in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually grew up in Utah, but um, I have, and I'm back in Utah now, but between my birth and now, I guess you could say, I have traveled around a lot of places teaching. I've lived in Hawaii and Louisiana. Um, I have taught in a variety of states in the United States. I've done some humanitarian work in the Caribbean. So, yeah, I guess you could say that I have ventured out of Utah um, since then. <laughs> yeah, I guess you'll be watching with considerable interest the dreadful events that are going on with Irma and now Jose in the Caribbean. It's a deeply yes. troubling time as we record this. Yes, um, I have, my heart has just been aching. I see some of these Caribbean islands that are just completely destroyed. And while I haven't visited the specific ones that have been damaged, um, they're very similar to the ones I have visited. And I just can't help but just feel sick about 
what they're going through. And so I, I'm sending my prayers and well wishes, of course, to everybody that's affected by those storms. My husband's actually packing up right now and heading out to Nashville to help um, those who are, have been displaced out of Houston with some mental health issues and things like that. So we're kind of in the thick of it, even though we're way over here in Utah. When I read your blog, you were talking about how when you were a youngster, I think you do have an Arizona connection as well, right? Because you were talking about being a uh, being involved in, in dance and how that was one of the first times that you came across discrimination yeah. as a blind person. Yes, that's right. I was I was pretty young and I was performing at the the Fiesta Bowl halftime, which was happening in Arizona, and that that was kind of my first experience with um, realizing that there may be an uphill battle as a person with a disability and getting people to place me on an equal playing field, I guess you would say. You have some usable vision, is that right? So you you would be considered under the old rehab system as a low vision person? Correct. I am not totally blind, so I'm kind of in that between group, as you mentioned. But yes, I, I do consider myself or refer to myself as blind, but I do have some usable vision. How did that affect you when you were growing up? Were you given access to Braille instruction at what you consider to be an appropriate time and all of those things? The short answer to that is no. I was actually not given any of any blindness services growing up. Um, the only thing that I received was large print. Um, my parents were actually advocates for me getting Braille, um, but surprisingly enough, or not surprisingly, depending on how much you know, the blindness professionals actually are the ones that told told my parents that I didn't need Braille, that it was unnecessary, that it was going to be more challenging for me to learn. And so I didn't learn Braille until I was 23, and I, I didn't start using a cane until that same age. So I was much older when I actually started getting the skills of blindness. And when you were growing up, were you one of those people who were comfortable with that, though? Because there's sort of a stigma attached to mm -hmm. blindness for kids, right? But kids want to fit in. And so if for you sure. feel that you are different in some way, then that's mm -hmm. difficult. Absolutely. I always struggled tremendously with self-confidence in general. I think whether I would have been born blind or not, that was just something that was a challenge. And so adding adding the blindness on top of it and kind of feeling like I was walking this line on where I belong. Um, I didn't have enough vision to be getting my driver's license like my sighted peers and um, I wasn't, quote, blind enough to be getting Braille and cane travel. So I always I always really struggled with my identity um, tremendously. And it, it's taken a lot of work and continues to take a lot of work, <laughs> can I emphasize, that um, to, you know, kind of find kind of find that my place and a place where I'm happy with with who I am. Mm. I think the driving thing is one of those issues mm -hmm. for many teens who can't see well enough to drive where you really are confronted with this kind of existential crisis, right? Because it's just such a symbol of freedom. Absolutely. I think that was, as it is for many uh, blind kids growing up, that was a big defining moment for me because 16, you're not exactly comfortable in your own skin yet anyway. Yeah. And then all your friends are driving and Real quick, a, a fun thing that my parents did, and I tell a lot of parents of blind kids this, is my little sister is actually blind too, but um, my dad and mom bought us a car. And I know that sounds crazy, but they bought us a car and, and 
they um, did the insurance so that we could have other people driving that vehicle or whatnot. And so we actually, I actually had a car of my own that I was responsible for putting gas in and keeping the registration up on, um, taking it through the car wash. And, and so instead of just having to always ask my friends for rides, some of them might be like, hey, do you want to drive my car and drive me around? Which I thought was a really cool thing that my parents did to kind of help me feel included. Interesting. How do you feel that mm-hmm. helped? Well, I think it gave me the same responsibilities as everybody else. You know, it comes up in conversations. What do you drive? Or letting me be involved in the process. One of the things I struggled with was constantly asking if I could go with people places. You know, like, can I go to the game with you? And and I really struggled with that feeling like I was always asking and never giving back. And so the car was kind of a way for me to contribute, I guess, as well. And to, you know, it wasn't a nice car. It was a used car that my parents probably didn't spend a whole lot of money on, but it kind of helped me feel more included in that, in that big milestone of life that sometimes blind kids have a hard time missing out on. Is there an interesting story behind your name? Because you don't come across too many people Mm -hmm. named Deja. (laughs) No, it's actually not a very interesting story, surprisingly enough, but my parents were just watching TV and they saw a woman named Deja on TV and they thought, that's a really cool name. <laughs> so that that's the extent of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Now, yeah. like many people, you discovered the National Federation of the Blind and that seems mm-hmm. to have been a major transformative experience in your life. Hugely, hugely transformative experience for me because I as I mentioned before, never felt like I really fit into a category. And, and, and so I always felt like I was not really a part of any group. And so when I, when I met members of the NFB, I started meeting people who were in the same situation as me, who had a little bit of vision, who, you know, wanted high expectations for myself. And I found a place where I could kind of bounce ideas and and I felt like I finally kind of my puzzle piece kind of fit in with with that group and it gave me lots of resources to reach out to and and I honestly think it saved my life in the long run that's quite a big statement yeah it is and I I fully believe that it's true and or else I wouldn't say it um my confidence was so lacking that I have struggled with mental health issues my entire life and when I found the NFB, it kind of gave me something to hold on to, something to fight for, something to belong to, and and it helped that aspect of my life tremendously. So is blindness a contributing factor, a significant contributing factor to, to the mental health issues you've struggled with? You know, in a roundabout way, I guess so, maybe, but not really. <laughs> I think it's something that I would have uh, battled with, whether I was blind or not. Um, I often tell people, you know, blindness is not very high up on my list of um, struggles in life. Um, but I think, you know, I'm not going to completely deny that it that it hasn't been a struggle for me, just not knowing my place, not knowing how to fit in. And so, of course, it's contributed in some way. I definitely don't don't believe that that is the sole purpose of my struggle with mental mental health issues. But it's a contributor for certain people, and it has been a contributor in certain parts of my life. Living outside the U.S. as I do, I see from some distance the 
immense success that the NFP is having in a whole range of advocacy areas, but it is an organization that seems to evoke very strong emotions either way. I wonder if you have a view on on the fact that some people claim the NFB is is almost cult-like, unduly undemocratic. It's not a true advocacy organization because of its lack of democracy. These are some of the things that people say sometimes. Oh, sure. And of course, um, you know, I'm the first person to say that you have to find what works for you. And the NFB was a perfect fit for me um, personally. And I believe it can be a good fit for a lot of people, but not for everybody. Um, I can only speak from my perspective on this and, and that it has been an enormous help in me realizing what issues are important to me and what issues are worth fighting for. And it has given me an outlet to develop relationships with other blind people, a variety of blind people that I can turn to if I need to for support or that I can bounce ideas off of. So the NFB has been a good fit for me and I'm grateful I found it for, for that reason. I'm interested in tracking the progress in terms of how you became a cane travel instructor as somebody who really didn't live life, you know, as a kid, as a blind child. And now you are in this position where you're instructing people on cane travel. How did that come about? Oh, sure. You know, it's it's kind of a long story, but I will try to make it brief. Um, I had no interest whatsoever in working with blind people ever uh, growing up or in college. I graduated college with a journalism degree and um, I did a little bit of that and I enjoyed it. And yet I didn't have the skills I needed to be successful in that field. And I had all intentions of going back to it, honestly. And, and that's when I reached out to get training for myself and I found um, a program in Louisiana at the Louisiana Center for the Blind. And that was a good fit for me. I really needed the push. I really needed the non-visual training. And it was kind of there that I slowly made this transition into thinking that my cane travel teacher at the center, Derek, kind of kept mentioning things about me being a good teacher, a good cane travel teacher, which surprised me because honestly, I wasn't the greatest cane traveler when I first came to the center, but I quickly realized how much that particular course changed me, um, not just my travel skills, but like my confidence just started soaring. And I kind of liked that part of it. And um, through some convincing <laughs> Uh, he really got me thinking about the possibility of that being a career. And when I saw what it did for me, there was really no question in my mind what I wanted to do with my life after that. So it kind of came fast. I would say within less than a year <laughs> that I made that decision. So. so you will have found the Louisiana Center because of your contacts with the NFB, right? So I guess what would have happened is that you saw other blind people being extremely independent, functional, confident, and you wanted that. And so eventually that led you to Louisiana, which led you to your profession. Oh, exactly. I mean, you pretty much said it. You pretty much summed it up. I saw people um, that I was meeting, friends of mine that I had known kind of, I was kind of in and out of the NFB for a while, not fully committed, but I would see their their independence and their confidence and I wanted it. Even at my ripe old age, 
I am still proud to say that I'm a radical. So I mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. understand the ethos that says that there is nobody better to train a blind person than another blind person. But there are specific how-do-yous that keep coming up when I talk to people about blind travel instruction. For example, how are you ensuring that somebody is not putting themselves in danger when they're learning to travel and you're not able to check those things out by observation? I think that's a really great question and a very fair question. And I actually appreciate it when people ask me this question. Um, When I very first entered the field and started teaching, I started at a place that was very much against me being there. Um, One person kind of advocated for me to come be a blind cane travel instructor and the rest of the staff were not so sure. And I had to answer this question a lot. And the short answer is, is getting the proper training as a teacher. Um, I feel like I was very well prepared through my program, my master's degree program. I feel like the focus was on teaching non-visually. And because it was like that, what and, and the focus was on that, whether you were a 100% sighted person or not. And um, the skills were taught from, from the very beginning of how do you monitor somebody and and how do you make sure they're safe? And going into it, leaving college, I felt 100% comfortable knowing that my students were going to be safe under my instruction. And it's almost been a decade, I can't even believe that, since I graduated um, as an O&M instructor. And I've never had an issue with my student safety. I have learned the skills how to monitor non-visually. If I ever have a question, um, I have resources to turn to to figure out how to do that successfully. My concern with blind travel instructors is blind travel instructors not getting the proper training to be teachers because there are programs out there um, training O&M instructors who claim to be able to train blind O&M instructors and they they simply aren't teaching them the proper skills to do so non-visually. And that's the part that that I'm kind of with them on that fear. But I think if you have the proper training and you know how to do it and you know how to monitor your students, I believe that I'm a pretty dang good teacher and um, nothing has ever happened to one of my students ever. And um, I'm pretty confident that my students are, are always safe with me because of the training I got. If we look at a specific scenario, like a blind person crossing the street and Mm -hmm. not listening for the direction of traffic and putting themselves into a situation where they could potentially be run over, I suppose the argument might go, well, a sighted person can instinctively see that and if necessary, jump out and grab the person and save Mm -hmm. them. Uh, How is a blind person going to be able to react in that same sort of immediate way? Well, I can tell you, Jonathan, that I have jumped out and grabbed a student many times who thought it was a good idea to cross the street. There's lots of ways to do it. When I'm with a student in particular, I have a cane. When I'm teaching, too, my cane is always touching the student. I'm personally not, but my cane is. If I feel that student move and it's not the right time, I have plenty of time to react to that. Now, people say, well, what do you do with lessons when the student is supposed to be a little bit ahead of you or you're just observing a lesson. Well, I think that comes along with knowing when your students are ready to do it or not, whether you're sighted or not. If you're standing back and doing an observation, 
you're going to have about as much time to react as anybody else would. And so I think preparing your students, number one, those those little skills like I just told you, like making sure your cane's touching the person. My students, I always say, you need to tell me crossing, the word crossing when you're ready to cross, and that way I know that you're doing it. And so it's something as so simple as that that lets me know that my, my student's going to cross. And if it's not the right time, I say, whoa, no, don't cross. <laughs> you know, you kind of step in the same way I think a sighted instructor would. Tell me a bit more about the training that you went through. What what does it take, in your view, to be trained successfully to teach another blind person cane travel? The answer is actually pretty simple. It takes spending a lot of time teaching other students non-visually. It's really quite simple. I In my program, I spent around 1,000 hours under a blindfold. That included time training myself to be a strong traveler And a significant amount of that time was done teaching, you know, whether I was being supervised, whether it was apprenticeship, um, I did an extensive internship and all of it was non-visual. So I say the more non-visual training um, an instructor gets and blind or sighted, the better they're going to be at teaching non-visually. Seems simple, but that's kind of the basic element. Um, I hear some programs say, you know, we're really proud. We spent 600 hours under shades, which that's great, but you can see the significant difference in the number of hours in the program that I attended, which no other program really gets close to at all. The NFB training model, the rehab model, is that even if you have some usable vision, if you can't depend reliably and consistently on that vision, then you Mm -hmm. should be taught to do things in a non-visual way. And so that has caused NFB over the years to basically Mm -hmm. say, look, if you don't have enough vision to function all the time as a sighted person, then we're going to call you a blind person. Low vision is not Mm -hmm. something you often hear in the NFB context. Now, (laughs) so I do want to ask you about this because Mm -hmm. there, there will be some people who are saying, well, okay, you're a successful cane travel instructor, but how much are you really using your vision to help you out with this? Sure. That's a fair question, too. You're asking a lot of really good questions that I would ask myself. I use my vision a lot to teach. Uh, I do not teach under shades all the time. Um, I absolutely don't. I was completely trained non-visually. And when those shades came off to teach, my natural vision, of course, kind of, you're not going to stop using your vision. I mean, it's there. You're going to use it. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I never use my vision to teach because that's absolutely not true. Um, I do use my vision to teach. But the important thing for me is to know that I have the skills. I have the availability to put on my my blindfold. We call it training shades now. There's all these weird, weird with kids learning shades, all these different things. But basically, it's a blindfold. I can put my blindfold on and I can show my students what's possible to do. And I feel comfortable doing that. So yes, I use my vision, but I also know that I have the skills that I need if I need to pull them out. And there are totally blind travel instructors out there, right? Oh, absolutely. I've worked with a ton of them. Yes. The question of O&M instruction also 
leads to the, the different methods that people use to learn roots. So as mm-hmm. I understand it, there's the kind of root method and then there is the structured discovery method, which I think is the term that the NFB centers favor. What is structured mm-hmm. discovery and what are, what are the advantages of that? Structured discovery is it's interesting because it's been around for quite a while now, but it's still something that a lot of people are exploring and and even more conventional programs are starting to explore structured discovery and having different courses um, on it because it's kind of a unique way of teaching, but not really. Um, discovery learning has been around for a very long time. It's basically based on experiential learning, uh, a hands-on approach to getting in and learning something, doing it instead of being told how to do it. And that's basically the basics of structured discovery cane travel. Uh, One of the biggest misconcepts is that we just send students out and they have to figure everything out on their own. That's 100% not true. Um, There has to be a basic skill set in there. And many of my students never go out on their own until a few months into their training program. Um, (laughs) It's not like day one we send them out. And so that's where the structured part comes in. So the discovery learning is based on when you encounter a problem, dealing with it in the moment, figuring out how you're going to resolve that problem, not having everything planned out ahead of time, because realistically, that's kind of not how things work. And I'm sure you know that, and a lot of your listeners know that as blind people, we can't always predict what's coming. And that's kind of the goal of structured discovery is how are you going to deal with that when you encounter it? And then the structured part comes in with an instructor like myself guiding that process, trying to talk the student through that and trying to lead them to come up with a solution themselves. So that confidence starts to build that they're able to problem solve and that guiding and that teaching is still there to provide the structure of teaching. Do you think that there are actually advantages of being trained by a blind cane travel instructor as opposed to a sighted one? Yes, I I do think there are some advantages. Now, I have to be frank with you. When I first went to training and I was assigned my travel instructor, I got the one-sided instructor that was on the staff and I was honestly disappointed I was like, you know, I I came here, I wanted to see, I wanted to be trained by a buying person because I trusted their experience. I trusted that they knew what I was going through. Turns out my sighted travel instructor was excellent. He was everything I could have hoped for and more. And so I think there can be some incredible sighted instructors out there um, who are equal to as far as teachers and being able to Um, provide the same experience. However, I also think they'd be the first to tell you that there's one element they're missing. That is the everyday life experience of being a blind person. And it's just something that no matter how long they spend under a blindfold, it is not, it's not their life. And um, I've heard this from sighted instructors, you know, it's not anything about them being lesser or any worse of a teacher, because I believe there are some of the some of the best instructors out there are cited, but it's about having that one element that they they can't learn, that going out into the world and dealing with the way you're treated in public and dealing with, um, you know, what it's like to 
not be able to take off your shades or not be able to throw your cane down and not have to use it. And so it's that real world like mentoring thing that I think is so powerful in having a blind cane travel instructor is that element of saying, yes, I understand. And this is how I've done it. I think that's definitely a plus. And I think cited, um, a lot of cited cane travel instructors would agree uh, with me on that. Right, because everything that these people are learning about blindness, they're learning by observation, aren't they? By observing other blind people, not by experience of blindness itself. Correct. So why yes. not go to the source? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And yet there will be people, there are people, I'm sure you've encountered them, who say, I do not want to be taught cane travel by a blind person. It creeps me out. It makes me feel unsafe. Oh, yes. How does that make you mm-hmm. feel and how do you deal with that? I've had this happen to me on on more than one occasion, and it when I first entered the field, it, it as much as my school tried to prepare me for the situation, it I mean, of course, it hurt a little bit. Um, I think I'm a good teacher. <laughs> I think I am a safe teacher, and so obviously, hearing that can you know make you feel bad a little bit. But I have tried to approach it as wanting to address the issues with them directly and and to not jump down their throat immediately and say, well, what's wrong with you for not thinking I'm safe? But actually sitting down and conversating with them, what part of it concerns you? You know, kind of like you asked me the question about crossing streets. And a lot of times when those conversations happen and they start to see that you actually have techniques to do it, that wall kind of starts to slowly come down and you start to kind of build a rapport. Now, of course, there are some that that didn't happen with, but I would say the majority kind of, if you can have that real straight up conversation with somebody and get them to express to you exactly what their concerns are, most of the times those concerns can be addressed. So have you had people come back to you and say, Deja, I must admit I had my doubts, but you've you've talked me around and, and I'm totally convinced mm-hmm. now. I I've had I can't even tell you how many of those conversations I've actually had. A lot of them haven't expressed it to me in the beginning, so I didn't know they were concerned about me being their teacher, but later they'll come up to me and say, you know, I was really afraid for you to teach me and I am absolutely, my mind is completely changed. You know, I had one student in particular who fought and fought and fought me about blind people being able to teach. And now this is a blind guy who's now a cane travel instructor. So um, the irony, you know, is giving it a chance a lot of times is what it takes. My first NFB convention was actually in Chicago in 1995, and the room rate was $42 a night then, and they, they had it at the Hilton. And I remember hearing Kenneth Jernigan talking about O&M, and one of the things that he said at that convention, which always stuck with me, was that there were some blind people whose uh, orientation skills are so bad that they couldn't find their way out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> and now, I'm curious about your professional opinion on this. Are there mm-hmm. certain types of blindness, particularly congenital blindness, where you feel that spatial awareness is lacking specifically because of the type of blindness? Are there are there some people who are pretty difficult cases? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've had I've had situations where I may have literally beat my head up against a wall trying to figure out how to help somebody. 
And, um, of course there are, I, it's like anything else. It's like me with math. It doesn't matter how hard someone tries or how many tutors my parents hired to help me figure out math. I never got it. (laughs) And I still count on my fingers, you know, and I'm working on a PhD right now. So, I mean, come on. But I mean, of course there are situations where that's the case. And, and a lot of times there's still ways to find how to give them the basics. And I have actually never given up on a student. We've always made it. Um, Now, did they make it the same way some of my other students have? Maybe not. But I think the sign of a good teacher is being able to adapt the curriculum and giving that student as much as their potential can take. So are there certain kinds of conditions that are more susceptible to not being particularly good at O&M? I mean, I'm wondering if you look at someone's mm-hmm. file and you see, oh, they're blind because of X condition, where you say, okay, this student is more likely to be challenging than a student with a different condition. Honestly, no, <laughs> not really. Uh, the, I say this because I, I used to spend a lot of time reading pre-reports about students and their conditions and um, their health issues. And I quickly learned that that gives me very little information. Um, Everybody is so unique and so different, especially when it comes to cane travel, that it really is just a case-by-case basis. I honestly don't particularly care what their paperwork says (laughs) before I get them. I really just take it as soon as I meet them and we start doing some assessments as to where to go from there. I'm one of the fortunate ones who has a congenital hearing impairment included free with my blindness and it's one of those <laughs> one of those deteriorating I ones. I get one free. Yes and so <laughs> I wear hearing aids now and one thing I really do notice and I, I traveled a lot internationally for a long time and so you'd find that with hearing aids it messes with your spatial awareness a lot in the sense that you you stand by a bank of elevators at a hotel and the elevator goes ping and before you would have no difficulty whatsoever knowing which elevator went ping and when you are wearing hearing aids it's often impossible to tell which elevator went ping and you wait for the door to open Mm. and you try and look Mm -hmm. so what kind of training are you given and how aware Mm -hmm. are you of the challenges facing the many blind people who actually do also have hearing impairments I think this is another great question. You know, one of the things that we hear a lot is that structured discovery cane travel is only for the cream of the crop blind or people where blindness is their only disability. And that's absolutely not true. I wish I could show them my caseload <laughs> and they would they would know differently. And so I have worked with a lot of deafblind students, actually, and it's kind of become one of my areas where I I feel pretty proficient in. And when I was going through training in my own M program, we actually went to spent a week and learned some sign language. Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not super proficient in it after a couple of lessons, but we learned the basics. We actually did some training with, um, earplugs and blindfold when I was in training. I had to travel in a wheelchair. I had to travel with crutches. You know, you can't, obviously can't cover everything. I mean, there's sometimes I I get students and I think I would have never even thought to think about this particular issue. But there's a way to do it. And that's what I always try to 
to suggest to people is that structured discovery is not just for the cream of the crop. I've had some of my best students have been deafblind students who have just excelled in my class, in my course, and have graduated from our program and have done some pretty remarkable things. And so I think it's important, and I think there needs to be more focus on training for those situations in, in all programs across the country and being more prepared. But luck, for me, I was lucky enough to get some hands-on experience before I went out to become a teacher as well. We did a piece last year on the foundation fighting blindness and their mm-hmm. simulation thing. You'll be well and truly aware of that, sure. I'm sure. Now, uh-huh. so you mentioning working with earplugs and crutches and things begs the mm-hmm. question, when is simulation appropriate and when is it kind of patronizing? Sure. Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if I have enough time. That might be a whole other podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> but that's a really great question. And I think that including the population is important for me when simulation becomes becomes a thing when you have an extensive amount of time to devote to simulation you have that opportunity to have more than just a a minute of that experience i think the problem a lot of people had with the foundation fighting blindness uh program would you say no not program i don't know what you'd call it their little uh campaign campaign yes um was that it was happening for a brief moment and they were asking people who had never possibly even had an interaction with another blind person ever to do this. And I think that was the problem. And as teachers, we have to find that line because, I mean, I've had some training in deaf blindness, but do there, I don't have a clue what it's like to be deaf blind. And I'm not going to pretend like I do because I had that experience and and I'm not going to go around saying how hard it would be to be deafblind because I spent a couple of days with earplugs in. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, and so I think you have to be very careful about that and cautious of it, but also be aware of it at the same time and, and understand how you're going to interact with with those students and trying to gain some perspective without developing sympathy for a population. And so while you're making people mobile, you are also working on a PhD. What's your PhD on? <laughs> so I'm actually doing K through 12 education studies. And so I'm doing a program where I'm kind of treading my own ground. I'm still focusing on blind children. Um, my focus is very much on early intervention and giving kids canes early on and giving kids Braille early on and introducing them to assistive technology early on. And so that's kind of where my heart is, um, probably because I missed all that. And so I want other kids to have that experience that I didn't. But um, I'm constantly torn, Jonathan, because I love kids and I love working with adults. So I'm kind of always in this kind of middle ground where I want to do both. And people are always like, you have to choose. And um, I've decided not to choose right now. <laughs> I'm kind of delving into both both ends. And, and because I do not have a typical teaching experience, I kind of wanted the K through 12 aspect to kind of learn more about the education system. Um, whereas I feel the blindness stuff, I, ha- I have plenty of um, resources for that in my life. So that's kind of what led me in that direction. I would love to 
focus on the education of blind kids down the road and in some capacity, whether that's training teachers or um, starting programs in schools or uh, starting a charter school. I don't really know that direction yet, but somewhere along those lines. So you would consider a charter school as a viable option for blind kids? I would consider anything an option that's going to improve the current situation. And so I'm constantly bouncing ideas off of other professionals in education, blindness education and not, you know, regular education on how we can make things better. So the direction for that, I'm not sure yet, but I would consider anything that would make things better than the dismal, in my perspective, situation that's happening with blind kids right now. How would you see a charter school as differing from the special schools for the blind that already exist? Well, I think that's a good question. Unfortunately, I think schools for the blind have become, um, have kind of fit into one particular model and and they've been around for so long that they are, uh, it's difficult to veer away from the curriculum that's already established. They're set in their ways, I guess I should say. And uh, charter schools are kind of, a, I don't know if they're new anymore because they've been around for a while, but they're very popular here in the United States. Um, I don't know about other parts of the country or the yeah, world. Yeah, they're kind of seen but, as a right-wing solution, right? I mean, in general, they've, they've got a kind of yeah. right-wing brand about them. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And and I, I guess for me, I see the flexibility perspective in a charter school and being able to be a little bit more flexible with how things are ran rather than in a public school. Um, there's just such a shortage of teachers. There's they have their specific things that they have to focus on. Schools for the blind are often just crowded with um, not just students who are blind, but just tons of multiply disabled kids. And unfortunately, they're they're not getting the education they deserve because they don't have necessarily the the resources or the training that they need to be successful. So I think it could be a happy middle ground. I have to do a lot more looking into that to see. And, and I love hearing people's perspectives on this topic. So Anytime any of your listeners want to shoot anything my way, I would love it. I'd be really interested to see how your thinking develops on that. That's quite an interesting mm-hmm. subject matter. It's great to yeah. see the kids at these NFB conventions, isn't it, um, moving around with their white canes at a very young age. I actually find it deeply moving seeing them do that. It's my favorite worldly image, <laughs> uh, just seeing a kid walking around with their cane um and seeing them exploring and, and, and that's where my heart really is. I had an opportunity several years back. I kind of was thrust into this opportunity where there was no other teacher and I had to go in and teach these kids, um, cane travel. And I didn't particularly have an interest in teaching kids at the time. And I instantly like just found my passion and my drive in that and just seeing their excitement for learning and their desire to want to explore and do things on their own just kind of melted my heart a little bit. (laughs) So now I'm kind of stuck in that um, frame of mind of just wanting to make their lives better, you know. What's your view on guide dogs as a travel aid? I think guide dogs are great. Um, I, I think they're great if you are prepared, you know, to have a guide dog and to if you if you have you know, some training ahead of time, I think that they can be an excellent tool. I've recommended guide dogs to some of my students who have gone through our training program. So I think they can be hugely beneficial. Would you argue that cane travel skills are essential as a prerequisite to having one? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, I'm a bit biased because I'm a cane travel teacher. But I think those skills are are very, very important and essential to really being successful with a guide dog in your travel. I think if you have the combination of those two things, um, you can find great success. Have you read the October 1995 Braille Monitor, the famous Braille Monitor from October 1995? I have yes, we yeah, oh. that when we were in when I was in graduate school actually. <laughs> oh man, I think that broke the, that broke the internet. I mean, the internet was pretty young then, and I think it broke it. Yes, uh, there was yeah, a, yeah, a lot of discussion about yeah. that. <laughs> and of course, yes, there's a it's lot. Still a, it's still a big discussion. It's still a big discussion topic, and and I, I've actually had people say, "Well, I hear you guys hate guide dogs," and uh, <laughs> it's absolutely not true. Um, I think they can be an excellent. Um, travel guide i think they can be an excellent source for people to get around independently 100 percent uh it's just like a cane if used properly i think you can have a ton of success now your journalism background makes a lot of sense now because i have read your blog and uh, you don't blog mm-hmm. as much as you used to but i guess we'll forgive you because it sounds like you're doing a lot but <laughs> you do have this uh, slate and stylish blog in which you really articulately cover a whole bunch of things. And and some of the things you cover in that blog are pretty raw. You know, I mean, they're, they're you, they're mm-hmm. authentic, they're, they're, they're pretty frank. Um, but you also have an interest in fashion. And this is an interesting thing, because <laughs> I suppose that for a totally blind person, sometimes it can be challenging, I would imagine, especially for a totally blind woman, to sometimes know what is fashionable? I would imagine that you would uh, rely a lot on advice, people whose taste you trust, who understand your looks. But there, there must be some really unique challenges, in particular for blind women in that area, I would think. Absolutely, yeah. I, um, I have always been interested in fashion and style and even decorating, you know, things. Anything stylistic has kind of been of interest to me for as long as I can remember. And um, the biggest thing that I was concerned about, as materialistic as this might sound, was that I was worried that if I walked around as a blind person that I would lose some of that sense of style, which now I think is kind of silly of me to think. But for a long time, that's what I thought. I I thought I, I could lose that and have quickly learned that that's not the case. And I still find a lot of joy in that in that exact thing. And finding resources to learn about those things is, is fun for me, you know, finding blogs that I can read and, and getting perspectives from people that work at different department stores, I think is fascinating. And is just something I've always been interested in. And, and something I also think is important in the sense that me personally, I want to blend in with society, you know, I, I want to, I want to be a part of it. And I think part of that is, is, style and fashion, you know, you, you got to kind of blend in to an extent. Um, I think I probably am a little bit more of an overdresser than a blender inner, but, um, the sense that I want to, you know, I want to be a part of that element of society as well. And it can be difficult, right? Because that is Mm -hmm. one of those things as a blind person that you have, you, you can't learn by observation. I mean, you don't know, for example, what appropriate dress is for going to the theater unless you specifically mm-hmm. ask because you've got no way of visually verifying that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got to find alternative ways to find out what's in style, what's fashionable, what's not. And um, you've got to have people in your life who are willing to 
be honest with you, you know, never go shopping with your grandmother is my biggest advice because <laughs> my grandma, you know, thinks I look cute in everything and it's not true. <laughs> and so, you know, having people in your life that you trust in those on that particular topic and and not everybody is as interested as I am. Not everybody's searching for fashion blogs, but it can be as simple as, you know, kind of going in into a store and finding out what types of things are in style at the time and things like that. I want to congratulate you on all that you've achieved because it's really significant, I think, that you um, came from a childhood where you were not acknowledging blindness, you were not given the skills and the tools of blindness. And really in your early adulthood, you have acquired all these skills and had a really impressive journey. And I'm so grateful that you shared this with us. And I hope that it's made some skeptics about blind cane travel instructors think twice, because I think you're a fantastic ambassador for the cause. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. And I am always open to people asking me questions and expressing concerns. And I never want people to think that I'm unapproachable about things like that. And so, you know, I'm always encouraging people if they if they have questions or issues or concerns, you know, to talk about them. I'm a big believer that we got to talk about things to resolve things. So I appreciate you having this podcast as well, um, Jonathan, because it's it's important to talk about this stuff <laughs> and to have conversations about it. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. And we do get quite a few emails coming in. It's nice to get those audio attachments too. And it's so easy to do, especially if you have a smartphone these days. Just about any smartphone has a little voice recorder built in and there are lots of apps. So if you feel like you would like to make a contribution, hopefully be concise, but you can record a wee audio file and attach it to an email. And you never know, we may play a selection of them here on the Blindside podcast. As we conclude, I was very proud of the fact that here in New Zealand, we were able to cover disability issues in a way that have not been covered before in a New Zealand election. And we spoke to people from a number of New Zealand's political parties. We have a proportional representation system here in New Zealand. It's very similar to the German model. It was based on the German model. And as a result... We have a lot of parties to cover. I thought that I would follow up for you on what happened with the election over the weekend. We have our elections on Saturday here in New Zealand. It's interesting how the day of elections vary and are pretty consistent. So in New Zealand and Australia, we hold our elections on Saturday. It's always a Thursday in Britain, isn't it? And a Tuesday in the United States. I think Sunday is a pretty popular day for Europe. So that's fascinating how these traditions get established. Our election was on Saturday, the 23rd of September. And what's happened is that there is no result as yet. 46% of those voting have voted for the National Party, which is a right of centre party. They led a coalition government last time. A couple of the allies that they coalesced with are no longer in Parliament. They are short of a majority. 54% of people voting voted for someone else, and there is an argument to say that that 54% has voted for a change of government. One party in particular, the New Zealand First Party, who was represented on this podcast by Rhea Bond, has the balance of power and coalition negotiations will begin and they'll try and 
stitch together a coalition that will make up a majority of the parliament and that will determine who the prime minister is. So there's a wee way to go yet. And also, in a country of about 5 million people with a 79% voter turnout, there are still around 400,000 special votes to be counted. And that could change things just a little bit. It's possible that the National Party will drop by a couple of seats and that the left of centre bloc will pick up a couple of seats. So a lot to go on still in our fascinating election campaign. When we were breakfasting and talking about the election on Sunday morning, I said to Bonnie, I hope the blind side isn't some sort of political jinx, (laughs) because let me go over what's happened to the people that we spoke to. We spoke to Mojo Mathers, You remember she was the first person we spoke to in that series of election interviews and she was New Zealand's only deaf MP, New Zealand's only MP with a significant disability. And you'll recall that I mentioned in that interview how I was troubled by the fact that she had slipped down the Green Party list. She was on number 11, but she actually moved up a couple of places due to late resignations just before the election. So she was effectively number nine, but that was not sufficient to get Mojo Mathers back in Parliament. So she now is out of Parliament and there is nobody with a significant disability in New Zealand's Parliament. We also spoke with Rhea Bond. And Rhea Bond had this amazing rags-to-riches story, really. She grew up in difficult conditions. She was a foster child. She went to various foster homes. She pulled herself up. She trained as a hairdresser. She eventually became a member of Parliament. Rhea Bond is also no longer in Parliament. The New Zealand First Party, despite holding the balance of power at the moment, did not win sufficient votes for her to be returned on the party list. We were to speak with Peter Dunn, who was the United Future leader and in coalition with the National Party and also my MP, Well, the day before I was scheduled to trot along to Parliament to record that interview, he bowed out of the contest, saying he realised he couldn't win. We also spoke with Marama Fox from the Māori Party, and of all of the interviews that we did, that one received the most positive overseas reaction. People really enjoyed hearing the Māori perspective on issues. Marama Fox was certainly a colourful character, very well-liked. Well, not only is she not back in Parliament but the entire Māori party is out of parliament. They were decimated. They did not win a single seat. They did not have sufficient party vote to be returned to parliament without winning an electorate seat. So the entire Māori party has been wiped out of parliament. Nikki Wagner, the Minister for Disability Issues herself, she has also lost her seat. However, she's back in parliament because of her ranking on the national party list. So she is actually still there. And the only person who can be said to have a truly successful night of all the people we spoke to in that series is Labour's Poto Williams, who is returned in her electorate seat. And of course, she would have been returned anyway on the party list. I like to think that this little podcast of ours isn't a jinx and that there's no causal relationship between all these people we interviewed and so much political demise. We'll have updates on this whole business with the election, I'm sure, next week. Thanks so much for being a part of this week's podcast. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.